If you're able, stand with me in honor of the word of God as I read Mark 15, 21 through 41. The Crucifixion. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with them they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The death of Jesus. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine to put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joses and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. The word of God for the people of God. glad you're here. We're uh, continuing our journey through the Gospel of Mark, and we're in chapter 15, today looking at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and his ultimate death. We're going to look at the opening verse about Simon of Cyrene carrying the cross to the scream of Jesus upon that cross, that shriek, that cry, 
my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? To his final breath and the confession of the Roman centurion that truly this was the Son of God. We'll look with those statements to the verses that they refer to in the Old Testament, especially Psalms chapter 22, where many of what's happening at the crucifixion is being fulfilled in Jesus. So we'll look at Psalm 22 some. And also Isaiah chapter 53, which is in a reference to Jesus being crucified with these criminals and Jesus pointing us to Isaiah 53. So let's begin our journey. Simon of Cyrene. If you've been in church, you probably might recognize that name. You might have heard of him. Simon of Cyrene carried the cross of Christ. We have heard about him. Why was he uh, carrying the cross of Jesus? Jesus was severely weakened from the scourging he had received. We talked about that some in the last couple of weeks. The loss of blood would have been immense. He was unable to carry his cross. And Rome could had the authority by law to grab anybody and tell them, you're going to do this task. And they did, and they chose this passerby who had just come in out of the country I not even know what was going on. Just sounds like he's walking in. Hey, you, you're going to do it. He did. Simon of Cyrene. Carrying the cross of Christ. Because he was too weak to carry it. But Mark says something unique that even the other gospels that mention the cross being carried by Simon of Cyrene, which would have notified you of who he was, where he was from. You could go and find him and in Cyrene and say, hey, where's Simon? And find him. But there was something more that Mark adds who Mark is a very short gospel. He's very specific. He doesn't mention a lot of names. He doesn't mention a lot of details. He leaves out, you know, many more things that the other gospels include. But in this, he includes something that the others don't. And he says... Besides that he was coming in from the country, that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like, why would Mark throw that in? Talking about the crucifixion and that it really happened and that we place our faith in something that is solid and is actually eyewitness testimony. Richard Bauckham wrote, a book called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and it's about looking at the Gospels through and with the idea of them being eyewitness testimony. See, there's a lot of attack on the Word and the Scripture, and uh, they, they, they write things about how it's, you know, older and was written later, and, you know, all these people. Richard Bauckham, his whole point of his five, six hundred page book that he just breaks down all these scriptures. He breaks down this specific scripture and he looks at it through the eyes of an ancient historian and he sees that the reason why Mark would put this, and there's different 
ideas around it. What his is by far the most compelling is it's almost like an ancient historian put a f putting a footnote in it. Like if you don't believe me, like here is my reference, you can go and ask this person. So if you don't believe that in the crucifixion, you don't believe there was a Via Della Rosa, you don't believe that there was actually someone so beat and, and weak from scourging that there had to be somebody carry his cross, like this is just blind faith, just believe it, because, but if there were really eyewitnesses who saw this and you could go, did this really happen? You could go to Cyrene and you could ask for Simon, and if Simon wasn't there or had died or had been too many years, you could ask his kids and find out if it was true. And that's why it's in there. I think that's powerful. I think it says to us, and in many other portions of Scripture, that those Gospels were written by eyewitness testimony. You could go. It's actually there, so you can go and ask Rufus or Alexander uh, hey, are you a living witness of this? Did your dad really carry the cross of Jesus Christ? Go, yeah. Eyewitness testimony. The Gospels were that. Mark put it in there. There's not a whole lot of other reasons why he would have just added who he was the father of and mentioned his two sons. Other places in the scripture, it does this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 7. Paul says, I delivered unto you as first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. And that's what we're talking about. Died in accordance with the scriptures. And that he was buried and raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And what is the thing that he does next? He talks about eyewitness testimony. He talks about he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. These are apostles who are living and active. Uh, 1 Corinthians is considered to be written one of the earliest uh, epistles written, one of the earliest documents written in the Christian Bible, probably around 48, 49, 50, 52 AD. So if Jesus died in 33, like within 20 years of the time of Jesus, and he's saying, you can go ask Cephas. You can go ask the 12. There's, these are the people he appeared to. Why do you list names, Paul? You list them because there's eyewitness testimony that the crucifixion actually happened, that Christ really died according to the scriptures. It's not just blind faith. It's based on testimony of reliable witnesses, and you can go and talk to them. Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians 15, 6, he goes on and he says that Jesus appeared, resurrected to over 500 brothers at one time. Now, all of them might not still be alive, Paul says. So this is some time later that it's being written. Though some have fallen asleep, but you can go and ask most of them. It's there. It's reliable. Mark's doing the same thing. If Simon of Cyrene has died, you can talk to his kids. They're still alive. Go ask Alexander and Rufus and Cyrene and see if this isn't reliable enough for you. See, we don't just believe on thin air. We believe on eyewitness testimony that the scripture is that. It is real. It is reliable. It is true. Now, most of us here um, might believe that, and that is good. But a lot of times we can witness to others that because they say, well, you just believe and I don't. And you just have this blind faith and you just believe. And the scripture does say that we walk not by sight but with faith. And we do walk without seeing. But that does not mean that our faith isn't reliable and have reason to believe it. 
We believe because of credible testimony, human testimony and ultimately divine because we believe that the God inspired his word to bring it to us. We believe that God's promises have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ and that he was strong, became weak for our sake on Golgotha. We're looking at that crucifixion today on Golgotha of a man who was so weak he couldn't carry his cross and another carried it for him. And you can know who that was. Wow. Golgotha, the place of the skull. They, they offer Jesus wine mixed with myrrh, this kind of mild painkiller sedative, and he, Jesus refuses it. He says he doesn't take it. Then we read in Mark 15, 24 through 25, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each one should take, gambling for the clothes of Jesus at the foot of cross while he dies crucified there. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. Their day started at 6 a.m. in the morning, 9 in the morning, third hour. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. I mean, specifically, Mark is writing that. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen says specifically this. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Exactly from Psalm 22, verse 18. The crucifixion of Jesus Quote Psalm 22 several times. It's a reference that Jesus on the cross is fulfilling Psalm chapter 22. He's fulfilling prophecies in his crucifixion. Fulfilling the scripture that the soldiers who crucified Jesus would gamble for his clothes, and they were at the foot of the cross. It also says in Mark 15, 27 through 32, and when they crucified him, there was two robbers on either side, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, can you see that? How do you see them wagging their heads? Wagging heads, deriding, mocking. The kind of no thing, rolling a little bit. How do you see the wag? The wag of the head, wagging heads, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three, save yourself and come down from the cross. The chief priest, the scribes, mocked him to one another. They're talking to one another, mocking him. Hey, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, Psalm 22, 7 says, All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You see the mocking. You see the exact verse in Psalm 22, 7, the wagging of the heads. Mark 15, 27 shifts to Isaiah 53 in a way here. He says in Mark 15, 27, and with him they crucified two robbers, two criminals, two insurrectionists, 
one on his right and one on his left. Crucified with robbers, why? Why did it have to be? Jesus actually says this in Luke. So we turn to Luke in chapter 22, verse 37. Here's what Jesus says in talking to his disciples. I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled. Okay? Scripture must be fulfilled. In me, Jesus says. Ooh. Scripture must be fulfilled in me. And here's what he quotes. And he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus quoting that. Scripture must be filled. He's saying in me that he was numbered with the transgressors for what is written about me has its fulfillment it will have its fulfillment jesus is pointing to this fulfillment of scripture he's quoting to them uh, from isaiah 53 verse 12 isaiah 53 12 says this therefore i will divide him a portion with the many and he will divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors He must be numbered with transgressors. Mark is pointing out that he died with two criminals, one on his left and one on his right. And Jesus is clearly saying this. Now, in that context of Luke 22, Jesus is talking about being a servant. They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest at the right. They're going to the throne. Man, yeah, Jesus is in it. You know, there ain't no cross in their mind. There's no crucifixion. And Jesus is pointing them to Isaiah 53, 12. That whole chapter of Isaiah, where not only that chapter, but Isaiah began to say all these great things about the, 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 the Messiah, who the king would be, and they're great, and prophecies, and all these great things that the Messiah will rule and reign. And then he gets to Isaiah 52, uh, 42, and he starts talking about this servant of the Lord, my chosen. And there's this shift into my servant, and people today and Hebrew scholars and everything and rabbis still can't put this together. They think there's a shift that this is somebody else. He's not still talking about the king, the Messiah, because this servant starts, you know, he has some good things going, but there's this suffering that starts coming in. And especially by the time you get to Isaiah 52, 13, it says, behold, my servant. So he's talking about the servant still, still going on. Who's the servant? Who's, you know, it's not, who, who, who could this be? Uh, lifted up and exalted, great, yeah, the king, Messiah, he could be lifted up and exalted, yeah, on the throne. But then it says, 52, 14, his appearance so marred beyond human semblance. What? He's so beat up and scourged and marred and crowned on his throne and beaten and bruised and whipped and beaten, internal organs bruised, dying on a cross, too weak to even carry his cross, hanging up there, marred beyond human Semblance, you can't even, is that a human or what is that bloody thing hanging there? That's what Isaiah is saying. Well, who could that be because his son wouldn't be marred. He wouldn't be abandoned. He wouldn't be crucified. The king of kings, the Messiah, you know, who, so who is this? It's not the king. And Jesus is saying it will be the king. He's pointing and he's talking in the context about being a servant. He says, Gentiles rule and reign over you and lord it over you, but not so among you. You know, the servant will be the greatest of all. And he's talking about being a servant. And then he points them in Luke 22, 37. Luke 22, uh, 27 says, for who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? It is not so, it, is it not the one who reclines at the table? Like, he's the greater one because people are waiting on him. The more servants you have, the greater you are. 
But Jesus says, not so among you, but as the one who serves. Jesus has come to serve, and then he tells them he'll be numbered with transgressors. He'll serve in this way. He'll be that servant of Isaiah. So Jesus is trying to get him to look. Remember Isaiah 53 and 52 right there, and the servant, suffering servant, 53, 12, where I'll suffer with transgressors. That must be me. That must be fulfilled in me. He's pointing it out to them. Shh, shh, right over their head. Don't get it. But Mark is pointing us to that because he's mentioning that here. He's saying that he died with robbers, one at his right and one at his left hand because it's fulfilling Isaiah 53, this suffering servant. And that it would be Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the King would suffer this way, be marred beyond human semblance. Isaiah 53, 12, he was surely bore our, born our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was pierced with our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Crushed! That's what he was doing in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, Gethsemane means oil crush, oil press. He was pressed, blood sweat from his drop. He was crushed for our iniquities. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah 53, he's pointing to this. He's pointing to it. Jesus himself is pointing to it. Mark's pointing to it. Who considered, Isaiah 53, 8, that he was cut off out of the land of the living? This word cut off, gazar in the Hebrew, a primitive root to cut down, cut off, destroy. He was utterly destroyed on the cross. He wasn't married. He had no wife to remember him. He had no children, no offspring to remember him. He was utterly cut off. That's who this servant would be, cut off. Stricken for the transgression of my people. And then Isaiah goes on and says, but he had done no violence. He had done nothing wrong. There was no deceit even in his mouth. He never even lied, Isaiah said. He never even threw off a slight exaggeration of a lie. No deceit found in his mouth, Isaiah 53 says. But he suffered violence. He, had, you know, he suffered this brutality. And then Jesus dies. Our text said, when the sixth hour came, that's noon, there was darkness over the whole land till the ninth hour, three, the brightest time of day, and utter darkness fell while Jesus was on the cross for three hours. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, Psalm 22 we're back to Psalm 22 now. This is the opening of Psalm 22. This is Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus crying out these words from Scripture, knowing they're about him, and he is fulfilling them. Utterly in darkness, forsaken by God. And some of the bystandings hearing it said, Behold, he's calling for Elijah. I still don't get it. Oh, maybe something's going to happen. That's why we're here. We see something. Someone ran with a sponge filled with sour wine. Reed gave it to him to drink. Wait, let's see if Elijah's going to come and take him down. He's crying out for Elijah. And Jesus uttered 
with a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus died on that tree. He died on that cross. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about that today, but that's powerful. Access was open for people to come into the presence of God that had been banned since they were thrown out of the Garden of Eden. It was ripped. Come on in. Because of what Jesus... Sacrifices are over! You can come in through the cross of Christ. My son's breathe is last. And one comes in right in the next verse. A centurion sees Jesus die this way. Stood facing him, it says. Stood facing him, looking right up at him. And confesses this. He saw the way that Jesus breathed his last. He heard that cry. He heard that scream. He heard that shriek and the way he gave up his last. And he said, truly, a centurion, a Roman centurion saw the way Jesus was crucified and died. And he said, truly, this man was the son of God. Truly. That was life risking for anybody to say. Your pledge was to Caesar. Your pledge was Caesar was Lord. Caesar was even divine, uh, the, the son of God, the only one you would ever say anything like that to. And a Roman leader, a centurion, over a hundred men, a leader who had seen many people die, looked right in his face and just saw him breathe his last and the way he died. He said, truly, this is the son of God. Heaven, the temple, was, the curtain was really torn in two. Even scummy Gentiles were going to get in. It's open now for all to come in and be saved. Psalm 22, this, my God, my God, this shriek, this cry. They say the interpreters don't even want to, they want to kind of soften it a little bit and said, he cried out with a loud voice. That's not enough. It's the word scream, shrieked. My God, my God, the pain, the agony, the, the breath that it must have taken to pull him up on the stakes to even get a breath, but to scream something out. And then collapsed back on those nails that pierced his hands and his feet. That's how you usually die of just asphyxiation. You can no longer pull yourself up and get breath into your lungs. And he's pointing again to Psalm 22. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouth at me like a ravening and roaring lion. But I'm poured out like water. All of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, a lot of people say this could be a lament and David lamenting. And it's kind of both lamenting and prophesying about Jesus, but David didn't have this happen. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Jesus is fulfilling scripture, and he's dying this kind of death on the cross. Darkness descends this is no, I was listening to uh, Paul Warsher and Sermon on the Cross and about the cross, and he's talking about, yes, there was physical suffering, 
But look at the, co- the cross. God crushed Jesus with all of his wrath against sin. Forsaken and abandoned was the eternal Son, Jesus, by his Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus bore our sin. Jesus had cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane, let this cup pass from me. And that cup was a cup of God's wrath. This is the thing that Jesus uh, feared the most, was bearing the wrath of God against our sin in our place. Jeremiah the prophet, 25, verses 15 through 16 says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath. This cup of wrath. This is what Jesus was talking about. He was talking about, I like the way uh, Paul Washer said, Let me sum up all the prophets to you. Let me sum up everything they said. Because of your sin and rebellion, you will all drink of the cup of my wrath and die. Thus, all of the prophets. (laughs) That's what they're saying. That we are deserving of God's just and righteous wrath against our sin. We will all die because of our sin. And that death is coming. It's the cup of the wrath that, that in this darkness that Jesus is crying out, my God, my God. He knew this hour was coming and he won it in the garden. He won it when he said, not my will, but your will be done. I will bear this sin and all the anger of God's just and righteous judgment that sinners deserve in their place for them. I will do it. I will bear that just punishment. Isaiah says it too in 51.22. talks about, Behold, I've taken your hand, the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath. Obadiah said, For you have drunk on my holy mountain, verse 16, all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow. They shall be as though they had never been. This is that judgment the prophet's talking about. The judgment of God's wrath. Revelation continues. John the Revelator, John the Prophet, 14, verse 10 in Revelation. He will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire, sulfur, in the presence of the holy angels, and the presence of God. You see, that's what awaits everybody. That's what Revelation is saying. Everybody awaits that. God's wrath poured out in the full strength into the cup of his anger. That's what awaits you. Unless you stand in Jesus, who already bore his right and justice, wrath for you. See, that's huge. Whew, you want to clap? <laughs> I'm suddenly going to break out in a clap. Jesus won it for us. The Holy One bore our filth and took the Father's wrath for us and drank from the cup of his full fury for us onto himself. He was like, bring it, Lord, and he screamed out and he shrieked when he bore it because he bore it for us. And it's unimaginable what he bore, unimaginable. For all eons and eternities, I don't know if we'll ever even understand the full brunt of what he bore for lost sinners and filth like us sinners. What he bore, the just punishment that we deserved.
Romans 5, 9 through 11, since therefore we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We're saved from that wrath because he's borne it for us. Jesus died. This is serious. Sam Alberry preached a homily at Tim Keller's memorial service that they held this last week. And in that homily, I listened to it over and over again, and I wrote this. He was talking about his text was Mark 10, specifically verse 45, where Jesus had told them, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he's breaking down Jesus serving, that even the Son of Man came to serve. Like, if anyone could come and expect to be served, it would be the Son of Man from Daniel, the King of Kings, but he didn't. Even the Son of Man. So even him, Jesus didn't, he came to serve, and he talks about Jesus' service, and we like that aspect, and he said this, we might like that Jesus can serve us. We might think, I'd like to be doing better. I'd like to be doing better at life. I'd like to have some financial security, a little more finances. I'd like to be less lonely. I'd like to have a family, or I'd like the family that I have uh, to be a happier family, and all the people that I love to be healthy. I, I think you can serve me, Jesus. Yeah, I would, I would love these things. And maybe we're not sure about all the ways that Jesus could serve us, that he came to serve. But then he says he came, not only is that a surprise, but that he's come to serve us in a specific way. Jesus is saying that his death on a Roman cross, that he would give his life, would be a death like no other. He says that on that cross, he would be giving his life, not just as a jester, but as a ransom. He specifically says, I'll give my life as a ransom. Now, a ransom, Jesus, that says in his death will be a service to us because it will be a ransom for us. Which means Jesus is now not just making claims about himself, what Jesus will do, he's making claims about us. Because people who need a ransom are people who are not free. We need a ransom. Jesus is saying, I'm coming to give my life to be a ransom. He's saying something about us, saying we're captives. That we're not really masters of our own life. We're slaves. We're slaves to sin. Jesus has come to give his life as a ransom. Death that comes isn't just physical. Death that comes is spiritual. It's of darkness. It's a, a blackness, a, a separating of spiritual reckoning that needs to come. It's in that darkness, that spiritual darkness that Jesus is crying out when he was crucified. It was an utter abandonment of God. It was a, a darkness that is hard to comprehend or imagine. And Paul Washer in this sermon said, the sound of a key only sounds good to someone who knows he's locked in a dungeon. 
sound of a key sounds only good to someone who knows he's locked in a dungeon because humanity has no awareness of their captivity to sin. They have no awareness of the joy of the sound of that key, the sound of the gospel. And that is the only thing that will set them free. Jesus alone will set us free. And what Jesus did on the cross sets captives free. He gave his life as a ransom. Psalm 22 begins with the most anguished cry that will ever be heard in all of history. I want you to always remember it. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it was so powerful that Mark wrote it in the original language, which very rarely happened in the original Aramaic, because that scream just could not be forgotten. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. It couldn't be forgotten. That scream of what Jesus bore on the cross echoes today. And when I was going over uh, Tim Keller's memorial service, I, this article came up on the Gospel Coalition that quoted some of his sayings about the cross. And one of the things he said is, we know God will answer us when we call because one terrible day he did not answer Jesus when he called. Mm. Jesus' prayers were given the rejection that we sinners merit. Our prayers deserve rejection. But Jesus did this so our prayers could have the reception he merits. Ponder that for a little while, the cross, his crucifixion. Keller said this, if the suffering Jesus endured did not make him give up on us, did it ever make him give up on us? Never did, right? That amount of suffering that we can't really imagine. If the suffering Jesus endured did not make him give up on us, nothing will. Nothing will. He will never give up on us. He will never leave or forsake you or me. He will never leave or forsake us. This is the power of the cross. It's the power of his suffering. It's what echoes out through his cry of abandonment that we have acceptance, full acceptance in him. Ponder this. The only storm that can really destroy the storm of divine justice and judgment on evil and sin, that's the only storm that can really destroy is God's justice and his judgment on evil and sin. Will ever come, will never come upon you. It will never come upon you because Jesus bowed his head into that ultimate storm willingly for you. He died receiving the punishment for sin we deserve so we can be pardoned when we trust in him. When you see him doing that for you, it certainly does not answer all the questions about the storms in your life and the suffering you might have, but it proves that despite it all, Jesus loves you no matter what and no matter what you're going through. Because he has thrown 
he has allowed himself to be thrown into that storm for you, you can be sure that there's love at the heart of this storm that you are in. When I look to the cross, I know that no matter what I'm going through in this life, even though I don't fi can't figure it out and I don't have all the answers to why, I know what it isn't, and it isn't that he doesn't love me. I know he loves me. The cross has proved it. And he will never leave me nor forsake me. And my closing remark of Tim Keller's quotes is, if you were a hundred times worse than you are, imagine how bad you are, imagine you were a hundred times worse than you are, your sins would be no match for his mercy. That's what Jesus paid for at the cross. Amen? Amen. He paid it all. We're going to invite you to the Lord's table. Jesus himself established this ordinance to his followers. And we're going to ask you to come up. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, a believer in his sufferings at the cross, um, even if you're visiting with us or not, uh, you're welcome to come and take communion with us. We'll take our cups and return to our seat, and we'll take uh, the Lord's at the Lord's table together. So please just come and get your cup. There's a cracker in the bottom of it. was betrayed he took the bread he gave thanks to the father for it he told his disciples take and eat of this bread for this is my body let us partake of the bread together and remember Jesus and his body given for us manner he took the cup he said this is the cup of the new covenant my blood given for you for the remission of sins do this in remembrance of me do this until I come
Let us partake of the cup together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. We thank you for his body given for us and his blood shed for us. It would be our joy praise you, Father, for the gift of your Son throughout all eternity. It would be our joy to give praise and worship of Jesus who gave his body and his blood so that we could be reconciled to you, God, and have be transferred from your wrath, God, into peace with you, to be completely reconciled, to be at perfect peace with you because of the perfect Prince of Peace who gave his life for us on Calvary. Help us to worship you, God, even in this closing song. Penetrate our hearts. Warm them, soften them, anoint them with your oil, the oil of your Holy Spirit, to give Jesus the praise and the honor and the glory that he alone deserves. Forgive us when we do not. Forgive us, Lord. And we thank you for Jesus' body and blood that washes away all of our sins and brings us that complete forgiveness. Thank you that the veil was torn. Thank you that we can come into your presence and let us enjoy your presence. Fill your people with your joy as we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.
grateful for that. Ephesians 1 says, you have been lifted up. You have risen with him in Christ, and you're blessed with Jesus, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Go in the light of that love and be a light to this dark world. In Jesus' name, amen.